Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode three of series three of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Unconscious bias is a huge problem in the workplace, especially in areas like recruitment, promotion, and performance management, as well as being a major barrier in efforts to improve diversity and inclusion. Whilst training and awareness can help, as humans, we have inherent and conscious biases. So how can technology, data, and science help? And what steps do you need to take to minimize bias through the use of technologies like AI, rather than to perpetuate it? That's the topic for this week's podcast, where my guest is Frida Polly, co-founder and CEO of Pymetrics, where we discuss how AI and behavioral science can reduce bias in recruiting. In our conversation, Frida and I discuss why recruiting is broken and how AI and behavioral science can help to fix it. We talk about the ethical issues we need to think about when using AI to support hiring and people decisions. We also talk about the bold initiative Pymetric has taken to open source its code, as well as talking about the the challenges involved in being a, a female CEO and founder of a successful HR tech company. Finally, like with all our guests, we also look into the crystal ball and ponder what the role of HR will be in 2025. This episode is a must listen for people working or interested in recruiting, HR technology, behavioral science and people analytics, as well as diversity and inclusion. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for series three of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Support for this series is brought to you by Pymetrics. Pymetrics is a future of work platform using data-driven behavioral insights and audited artificial intelligence to help companies better understand their workforce, as well as make fairer and more predictive people decisions. Pymetrics serves as a matching layer in the job application process, with the ability to assess candidate fit for any role within your company and the greater Pymetrics job marketplace through one single streamlined platform. The Pymetrics platform offers video interviewing and gamified assessments for collecting behavioral data like cognitive and emotional trait profiles, as well as numerical and logical reasoning. Candidates are matched to roles based on how they fit each role's success profile, which Pymetric builds off of top performers. To learn more, visit pymetrics.com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Frida Polly, CEO and co-founder of Pymetrics, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Frida, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. And obviously, we saw each other earlier in the week That's in London, right. <laughs> and here we are in New York as That's well. That's right. right. Um, welcome to the show. Can you give Thanks. listeners a quick introduction to yourself and, sure. and Pymetrics? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Frida Polly. Uh, I am the CEO and co-founder of Pymetrics. I spent 10 years as an academic neuroscientist at Harvard and MIT, um, loved the science we were doing, wanted to have it feel more applied, uh, transitioned out of academia through an MBA program at Harvard, and started Pymetrics, which uses behavioral science and artificial intelligence to help hiring be more accurate and more fair. Brilliant. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about what you're doing at Pymetrics later on. Um, I've heard you describe hiring as being broken, Mm -hmm. which is a great line. What Mm -hmm. do you mean by that? Well, I think most practitioners of talent matching it's not just hiring it's anywhere where you're trying to understand the fit of a person to a role that is really um, not working very well and I say that because of all of the statistics that are out there you know put out by Sherm and others where um, you know it's 250 CVs being submitted for one open role 
Um, it's 50% of first years, first year hires failing. Um, it's a uh, clear documented disadvantage that women, minorities, people of, you know, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, older people face when, you know, people are looking at their resumes. And it's quite frankly, a pretty bad candidate experience. Almost half never hear back after dropping their resume into the resume black hole and over 80% rate it as a, as a very poor experience. So I don't really think that any part of the talent matching process is really working all that well. And so that's what we mean. And one wonders what it does for uh, a, a company's brand. Yeah. Particularly if they're for a B2C sure. organization. Yeah, for sure. Well, the way that I like to equate it is to how movie selection used to be done pre Netflix, right? So you remember the days of Blockbuster, right? Yeah. Where you would go into a store and there was a very limited selection of movies. You would select the movie in a manual process using the movie resume, also known as the blurb. And in my case, it was almost a 50% failure rate because I would hate one of the two movies. And I thought that that was the way movies would be selected from you know now until you know I died. And you know, along comes Netflix, and you know, using better data and automation, we are now able to open the top of funnel of movies to you know, millions, tens of millions of movies. It's an automated process based on your own preferences, which you mm. still obviously then can choose this movie versus that movie. It's just a, it's a decision-making aid. Um, and the outcome is a lot better in terms of, I'm usually much happier with the movies I've chosen. And also I get to discover way more diverse and uh, non-traditional movies than I otherwise would have. Um, so I think that that's really the model that we want to move towards in the talent matching space. And I think that it's about moving from an analog process, which is breaking under the weight of uh, technology. I mean, why do we have 250 applicants? Because LinkedIn and Indeed sends us 250 applicants. That wasn't the case 20 years ago, right? Mm. Um, and so on and so forth. So I think that we need to now have our talent matching move into the 21st century, just like our talent sourcing moved there, say, a decade ago. Yeah. And you know, and we all know, of course, that mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you look at Amazon, their recommendation engine is something like thirty percent of their revenue. So mm -hmm. it's clearly mm -hmm. it, it, it's worthwhile doing. And obviously, we can't translate it quite as much as dollars yeah. probably in the hiring yep. space. But so, so in terms of the hiring area, how mm -hmm. can artificial intelligence and behavioral science help? Sure. Well, it's it's very analogous to the example I just gave you, right? So, what did Netflix do? Um, that transformed the way that we think of movies, right? So instead of using the blurb, right, they got rid of it. They don't actually use that in their matching algorithm. What they do is they had um, people basically uh, um, rate movies on their fundamental traits, right? Um, and that's sort of what we do with the Pymetric system with people is instead of looking at their resume, we look at them in a much more fundamental way, looking at their cognitive abilities, their uh, social uh, skills, their emotional aptitudes, and so on, right? So the first key area is getting better data mm. on whatever it is that you're trying to understand, right? Um, the resume is very superficial. And quite frankly, it's also really, really hard to unbias, even if you remove the name, because, you know, men and women play different sports, people of different ethnic backgrounds participate in different extracurricular activities. So it's very hard to remove that, that bias. So that's the first thing we can do with behavioral data, similar to what Netflix did with their uh, data. And then the AI piece just comes in because instead of using a manual process, just like Netflix has you say, okay, I like 
these movies, right? These are the, and then they determine what are the fundamental attributes of those movies that make you like them, which you may not even know yourself. I mean, I'm sure none of us actually know what the traits of the movies that we like are, right? Um, And that's kind of the really cool part of the discovery part. And it's the same with what we do is like we go into a company, we say, hey, give us people that you think are successful, right? You know, people that you think work well, they like the culture, they're good culture fits and so on. Um, and we'll take those people and we'll tell you what their fundamental attributes are. You may be surprised sometimes by, by what they are. Um, and that's where the AI piece comes in. It's that it's finding, it's, it's helping companies discover something about their workforce that they may not have known. And then you get an algorithm that is essentially can be used to discover talent anywhere. I mean, I think that's the beauty of it all is that you're no longer reliant on, oh, I have to know this. You can point it to any talent source, whether mm. it's in the West, Africa, uh, you know, some place that you've never gone before, and it will work just as well as you know, the places that you're more familiar with in a way that a manual process just can't, can't compete. So You widens the funnel, but... Yeah, it widens the funnel dramatically, just like we did with other recommendation engine technology, whatever your favorite example is, whether it's, you know, movies, books, whatever it is, um, in a way that just really allows all uh, people in this case to be evaluated fairly and on the same and put on the same playing field, essentially, right, rather than what we do now in recruiting, which is, oh, you know, I need to narrow my talent search because I don't have the bandwidth to go everywhere. Well, this gives you the bandwidth to go everywhere and then evaluate everyone in in the same way. So that's a huge piece of it. But then it's also helping the companies discover some things that they may not know about what makes people successful in role. Obviously, we work with them. They give us, you know, the job skills, knowledge, skills, and abilities. We do a job analysis questionnaire. We work with traditional industrial organization or occupational psychology constructs so that we're not throwing that out. But we're also saying, hey, help us tell you something about your organization or in that role that you may not actually know. So I think it's a, it's a nice hybrid, hybrid process. Mm. Yeah. And plenty, you know, this technology is still quite new for HR professionals in particular. Um, What are some of the misconceptions that you face? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest misconception that people have about AI in general, it doesn't matter if it's applied to hiring or you know, something else is what is it? I think a lot of people conflate AI with, oh, I'm going to scrape stuff from the internet and nobody knows that I'm doing that. Well, no, that's not what we do. We are actively collecting data from the person. Um, that That's different. That's data scraping, right? We, we don't do that. We don't do passive data collection on people. Some people do, but that's not what we believe in. Another thing that, you know, people believe about AI is that it's black box, right? Yes, some forms of AI are black box, but again, that's not us. We are glass box transparent AI, however you want to call it. Um, Another aspect of AI that people often assume is that um, by default, it will have the biases of the human, you know, creators, because at the end of the day, um, artificial intelligence is simply a machine copying a human, right? And again, yes, that can definitely be true. If you're not careful, if you don't check your algorithms, they can then replicate all the human biases. And because they're so powerful, do it, you know, at a, it's a force multiplier. But that also doesn't need to be the case. So I think the biggest thing that I always say is, and I don't think I was the person who coined it, you know, Artificial intelligence is an enabling layer that's just like electricity. And electricity can be a huge, powerful force for good. And it can also, unfortunately, be used for to in a harmful way. And technology is neutral. And any technology is neutral. AI is neutral. It's really the design 
um, that the that the technologists have in mind when they create the artificial intelligence that matters at the end of the day. So interesting talking about how you check for bias and, mm-hmm. and validate against it. How mm-hmm. how do you how do you do that? Sure. So um, the way that our platform works is that we build um, local job models for every company that we work with. It's called, in the U.S. It's called the local job validation study, which means that um, we don't assume that we have a sales profile that will work anywhere. We'll go into a company. We'll have your top performing salespeople go through our platform. We'll you know compare their traits against a baseline, and we'll say these are the traits that make someone successful. We will also um, use a job analysis process to understand how those traits map to the um, the actual uh, job that they're performing, because obviously people want to know that. Um, and so that's a big part of, for us in any case, the validation process. It's yep. a concurrent validation process um, that then we follow on with a predictive validation process. So then after we've you know had the algorithm live for a while, we'll then co- collect performance data, retention data, and so on to validate it in a predictive way. So that's the validation piece. We also have construct validity um, and other types of validity that that are important in the occupational psychology or IO world. And we have a whole team of uh, oxykes or IOs that have helped us really, you know, be buttoned up on that. The debiasing piece is actually something that is fairly unique to our platform, or certainly we're the only ones who've open sourced how we do this. So Early on in the in the history of Pemetrics, we realized, look, some companies, no matter how hard they try, don't have a representative sample at the moment of people in a particular job, meaning it's overly Caucasian, it's overly male. And so, again, you know, if you just take that group of people, even though your data may be unbiased, you will pick up, um, because of the Simpsons paradox, um, potentially bias in that sample, and your algorithm will then be biased, right? Mm. And we all know this. It's you know it's a known fact. In fact, Amazon got into trouble with that recently and was in the news, right? Um, and again, as you know, um, hiring tools can actually have adverse impact and be legal so long as they're job related. Um, I think that's unfortunate. We actually take the position that even though that's true, we don't subscribe to that. Um, and we really believe that that comes from a bias in the training set. So what we did is we created an audit process. Essentially, it's just like any audit process. You check the outcomes. You say, okay, this algorithm, I'm going to run it on a test group um, of real people that have given us Pymetrics data. And we say, yeah. okay, between men and women, are they getting you know equal pass scores? People of different ethnic backgrounds getting equal pass scores? And if the answer is no, because we're white box or glass box, we can go back and say, oh, this feature is causing it. Okay, let's remove it or deweight it and then run it again. And again, when we say run a model, we're running hundreds of models. So, you know, if one is, you know, showing that, we can go and get one that's equally good and then just is not having that um, biased effect. And it's a pre deployment audit process that we've open sourced on GitHub. So anyone can go and check it out and see what we're doing. Um, and we, and that's what we give to a client is we'll say, you know, we won't, we won't release an algorithm unless it's past our debiasing process. Which is interesting because, uh, I was at the Wharton People Analytics Conference yep. uh, a few weeks ago, actually, yep. and Adam Graham mm-hmm. actually got on stage and said, yeah. it's time that HR tech vendors open source their code. Yeah. You're doing We that. are doing that. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And we feel very strongly about this. We feel very, very strongly about this because, um, you know, because you want to show what you're doing, you know, mm. you want to be able to show. And look, you know, we're also engaging in research studies um, with, you know, uh, professors at MIT and other places so that we can have those peer reviewed articles. Look, I'm a 
academic scientist. I've got a lot of peer-reviewed articles. I have no problem in doing that. As you know, it takes a while to uh, get through the peer review process. So while we're doing that, let's help people understand what we're doing. Because I think at the end of the day, if you have designed your technology um, to, to, to follow all of these principles, it's good to show that because I think people need more examples of AI that is following certain ethical design principles and is actually, you know, working towards creating a, a situation that's not only more accurate, but more um, fair. So, And it's funny because some of the companies like yours are more at the cutting edge of some of the technology. I'm thinking about Ben Weber, yep. uh, Human yep. Eyes, yep. Kieran Snyder at Textio. Yep. Yep. You seem to spend as much time trying to educate the market yes. as you do trying to, to win new customers. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think that, you know, both, um, I knew Ben actually from my MIT days. So, you know, we've kind of grown up with this together. And I think a big part of what we're, you know, that we did as academic scientists is tell people about our science, right? I mean, yeah. it's a very common, I mean, Ben has written a book. He's a little bit of a superstar in Japan. Apparently it had a big audience in Japan. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but anyways, the point is that I think it is about education and I have no problem with that. And I think that it's important to educate people mm. because look, I was at this, um, I was, we're lucky to be part of the World Economic Forum Technology Pioneers. As part of that uh, event, we were um, spoken to as a group by a woman uh, who had written a book about trust and technology and how, you know, technology was, uh, how it could bridge the trust gap. And she gave this great example of how back, um, you know, 150 years when steam engines were first um, invented, people were afraid uh, of steam engines because women had never traveled at such high speeds. They thought their uteruses were going to fly out of their bodies, right? Now, you know, we laugh and we think that's silly, right? But, you know, I think that there is always that fear when mm -hmm. a new technology comes online. I'll never forget when, when I was a, you know, brain imaging scientist and people started talking about, oh, we're going to, you know, be able to image the brain and, you know, then predict stuff about people's, you know, uh, mental health and all the rest of it. And as scientists, we were all like, oh, my God, you know how hard it is to predict anything? Like, you know, and people were fearing that, you know, it's going to become this Gattaca-like future that you take a scan of a newborn's brain and you're going to be able to predict, you know, all these things about them. And, you know, as scientists, we all know, you know, that it's incredible predictions extremely hard right it's just not that we would ever want to get to that type of future but it's just not in our grasp even if we did want it right so the point is i think people always fear these dystopian futures and we have to say to them okay hold on a minute you know yes there is potential for that but let's look at the reality and let's you know put on some put in guardrails i mean essentially that's what everyone is talking about now with ai is you know developing ethical standards developing guardrails um developing you know standards like ieee that you know governs all sorts of technology to and, and it's you know people like stuart russell and others that are you know leaders in the field of ai it's not you know practitioners like me it's people that have really sort of you know written the textbook literally yeah. on ai and coming up with beneficial ai and and all of these councils are getting stood up to really you know, coalesce around what are the ethical principles um, of AI going to be. So I think that education is a critical component of alleviating some of the fear and mistrust um, that people have. And I think that that's a good thing, because at the end of the day, I do believe this technology has immense opportunity for improving, you know, the current state of hiring and talent matching. Um, and so we need to, you know, kind of educate people. So, I mean, and I think the other thing to make to note is that 
when people fear these dystopian futures, I always say to people, well, you know, have you looked at the present? It's not that utopian, right? I mean, there's a lot of socioeconomic inequality. Um, There's a lot of people that are left out of the workforce. There's a huge dislocation of people from, you know, these types of jobs to these types of jobs. And, you know, AI has the potential done well to actually alleviate a lot of these things. So rather than um, thinking, oh my gosh, the way that, you know, things work now are fantastic because unfortunately for a lot of people, they're not. Let's think of how this technology could actually be, be helpful. Make so, things better. As you yeah, said, make put the guardrails yeah. in place. It needs yeah. guardrails. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, like I would equate it to when, you know, cars first came on the road and <laughs> there were no seatbelts, there are no airbags, you know, there's no like, you know, say, there's no consumer report. I mean, everyone's just kind of developing stuff and that's normal. When something first comes online, that's what's going to happen and we should be worried. I mean, if people still didn't have seatbelts, seat and airbags and yes driving would be a lot more dangerous right um but that's not i believe i strongly believe that everyone is well-intentioned and putting um not everyone's well-intentioned but the people developing ai are coalescing around the idea that we need guardrails so and it's interesting because we work at uh, inside 222 with a lot of people analytics leaders yeah and actually the big problem they said to us last year can you help us put an ethics chart absolutely Absolutely. So I think the people yeah. actually doing the work realize that. Absolutely. So people yeah. maybe with less knowledge about it who completely. maybe get too much completely. in the dystopian side. Yeah, of it, completely. So. And again, I just recently listened to a podcast with Stuart Russell where he was talking about exactly that, right? That look, you know, the, and it's not just there are AI experts, so to speak, who are kind of, you know, blindly going along and thinking, you know, oh, you know, I don't need to be thinking about these things. You know, the objective function is not important and I can just, my objective function can be whatever. And, you know, Stuart Russell was basically saying, no, 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 that's, we got to kind of roll back the tape here and really think more carefully about this. So I wouldn't just say it's the public at large that is not realizing that these guardrails are necessary. I think there are also AI practitioners that are not thinking about it at all, right? And they're just thinking, what's the coolest new, you know, technique that I can use and I don't care if it's black box and I don't care if it's this and that. So I think it's writ large. I think some people are sort of calling, sounding the alarm and saying, nope, we definitely need guardrails. And, you know, then others kind of need to be educated as to, as to why that's important. So I think this is totally off topic, but I think, you know, things like the Facebook, uh, you know, data privacy, and then all of the sort of, you know, um, echo chamber um, algorithm stuff that happened is a wake-up call to a lot of people, even though it's in a completely different field. And I think that you kind of need those public wake-up calls to say, "Hey, whoa, this stuff can really go wrong if we don't if we don't keep an eye on it." So, and I think it's had an impact because I mean, if you look at the the work that Accenture published at Davos, yep. you know, is it trust and using workforce Absolutely. data? Yep. I think the you know actually employees ninety two percent said actually we're quite happy for our organization Absolutely. to have data about it, as long as we get benefit from it. Absolutely. So I think it's that trade off. Absolutely. Yeah. And Accenture is a great example. I mean, a you know, in full disclosure, they're a client of ours. Um, but they've done really some fantastic thinking around, okay, they've created a tool inside Accenture that says, okay, these jobs are at greatest risk of automation. And what they're trying to do proactively is say, okay, and how do we help people in those professions um, find new roles at Accenture, right? So Ellen Shook, the CHRO, has sort of made this, you know, pledge that she is wants to, you know, instead of mass layoffs and everything else, like it's really about, you know, taking people that have been successful in a role that you know, for no fault of theirs is going away and helping them be successful in different roles. And we see that across the board with other, you know, clients mm-hmm. as well. I mean, JP Morgan is another one where, um, you know, reskilling is a big part of their, you know, future work plan. And again, this 
I mean, so it, Pymetrics isn't just about recruiting. It's also about internal mobility and reskilling. And you can talent match anywhere, right? It can be internal. And that talent matching of, okay, you used to be in this role or you're in a current role like a call center and now you want to be upskilled or reskilled. How can we help you find you, your most optimal fit, right? Because at the end of the day, and there's lots of research to show this, like, um, you know, yes, people are malleable, everyone's malleable, but I think we're also born with sort of inherent, you know, predispositions to be better at certain things than others. And that's fine, right? Because there's everything from ballerinas to engineers to, you know, everything yeah. in between. And at the end of the day, it's helping people understand these are the things I'm more likely to be well suited for. It doesn't, it's not deterministic. You can still say, nope, um, I want to yeah. be a ballerina, even though I'm built like a football player and, you know, vice versa. You know, it's just going to be a harder road, but if you're willing to accept that, go at it. You know what I mean? It's just about helping people understand um, sort of the probabilities, I think, of, you know, of a place where they may may be better suited than not. So it's interesting you, you were talking about using assessments outside the hiring mm -hmm. process. And I think, talk about misconceptions, I think there is this misconception that companies that should only use assessments or do only use mm -hmm. assessments in the hiring yeah. process. And you were talking the example there around using it for internal mobility and identifying yep. skills for potentially for retraining and stuff like that. Yep. Can you talk a little bit more? Sure. Yeah, maybe give absolutely. some examples yeah. of where, where, that's, sure. where that's happening. And again, I mean, just to be clear, I think some of these newer technologies that are coming online, like Pymetrics, we can act as an assessment, but it really is a talent matching system yep. that is a yep. one-to-many mapping, right? Um, meaning that it has broader, it broader capabilities. So to answer your question around reskilling, I think that's actually one of the, my favorite uh, use cases because there's a ton of a very accurate discussion of how the current workforce is being disrupted and people are being dislocated. And, you know, everyone has, I mean, if you go to Davos anywhere, it's just the prime topic of conversation. And, and people are, it's correct. I mean, it's happening, right? And it's not only happening to, you know, truck drivers, it's happening to physicians, right? Yep. So it's, it's happening everywhere. Um, so how can, how can artificial intelligence, a system like Pymetrics be helpful? So what we can be helpful with is again, you know, the, it is much easier to train someone with the right aptitude to have the skill than it is to take someone who has the skill but doesn't have the aptitude, right? Mm. I mean, I can think of many careers where um, I don't have the aptitude and it would <laughs> I would not be very trainable, right? Um, so what we do is we then work with companies to say, okay, these types of roles we know are at threat of automation um, and how can we help assess the people in those roles for aptitude for roles that may be coming online, right? And roles that they may ne never have considered that may not have even existed five to 10 years ago. And there are multiple ways of doing that. I mean, there are other platforms that look at it from a skills perspective, right? So there's a very interesting um, piece of research I read recently that said, you know, um, truck drivers that, you know, at some point may be completely, you know, um, dislocated by automated vehicles actually make great drone pilots, right? So that's a super interesting, you know, and they mm. looked at that from a skills perspective and it makes perfect sense. It's hand-eye coordination, all the rest of it. So we're not looking at it from the skills that you've learned. We're looking at it from sort of the cognitive, emotional, and social characteristics that you exhibit. Um, and, you know, a two-pronged approach can be, can be helpful with this. But at the end of the day, I think understanding your fit for something before you spend, you know, six months training, a month, a year training, and so on is really, is really critical. And we see lots and lots of large companies like Accenture, like JP Morgan, um, and many others engaging in these types of initiatives. So, And I guess it, 
it's almost like everyone's a winner out of it because organizations yeah. are struggling to find uh, people for the new jobs they're creating. Completely, yeah. Do they go outside and completely. recruit or yeah. can they actually, as you said, retrain, no, I mean, which seems socially more responsible to do? Well, it's well, so it's socially cheaper. more... Well, <laughs> you said it. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's cheaper, if it's on par, but the point is trying to go... So first of all, those people don't exist outside your organization, right? I mean, to go yeah. try to find a data scientist, you know, good luck to you, right? I mean, you're going to be fighting with everyone under the sun for that, you know, <laughs> very rare unicorn. Um, and then two, you know, it, back to your point, if you already know that somebody is a good fit within your organization, they're, you know, suited to the values of your organization, that's a big part, right? I mean, there's mm. been a lot written by Boris Groisberg and others that um, you know, it's not just about the role, it's about the values fit to the organization. Are you a value, culture fit, values fit, whatever you want to, whatever, however you want to describe it. And different organizations have different cultures or values. So if you already know that person works well within your organization and you can retrain them to perform, a, a, you know, to be in a role that is very hard to find outside, it's, it's a lot less risky a bet in a way than hiring somebody from the outside where that, you know, values fit is maybe more in question so not to mention that it's just a much more disruptive process right so yeah i mean i think that that's where you can really see how this technology can really support absolutely. organizations with these big absolutely. transformations that they're completely. going through yeah completely completely and i think it's also helpful with what's called or what i've heard called the brick ceiling right where companies want to allow opportunity for blue collar workers or you know not non-degree um, people to move into more professional uh, roles right because there has been some great um, talk, well not great sort of somewhat depressing um, research showing that you know 50 years ago you could start as a secretary and move to be the CEO right but now that doesn't happen for a variety of different reasons um, and now I think there's a desire to kind of go back to that time where look even if you start off in a blue collar occupation you have the possibility of, of rising through the ranks and it was actually interesting to hear um, the CEO of Walmart because at Walmart, everybody starts in one of these hourly roles. That's not common, right? And it makes mm. sense that they would they would do that. But the point is, I think AI can also be helpful in helping understand if I start out in a you know hourly role, how can I be considered for a professional role or something that has more of a career path? Um, and again, looking at that matching or fit. So that's another use case that we come uh, that we come up against. Which and is and great. rather sad that even though we supposedly progressed as a, as a race, we. We actually less there's less mobility. Yeah, that's that's, that's dreadful. Well, that's I mean that's the other thing. So I think, you know, one of the things that that has surprises people but doesn't surprise us is how much this technology can be used for socioeconomic um, inclusion. So, you know, we were speaking about the Unilever use case where, you know, yes, they got efficiencies and cost reductions and, you know, better candidate experience, all those wonderful things, right? Better accuracy, retention. But at the end of the day, I think the thing that surprised them the most was just how incredible a socioeconomic inclusion tool this was they had it was unexpected to us and it was unexpected to them right mm. and what did they do they opened up their top of funnel instead of going for their early careers program to just a handful of schools right they literally in the u.s alone went to 2500 schools right and they then hired because it's putting everyone on the same playing field they then got a lot more people from those you know sort of schools they had never even thought about 
And it was such a dramatic shift that they had to change their relocation policies because people were accepting offers and then saying, you know, thank you, but I don't actually have the resources to fly cross country, rent an apartment. And it was only at that moment that they really realized, wow, like our pool of candidates prior to this was pretty homogenous when it Mm. comes to a socioeconomic perspective, right? And if we want to really use technology to start to move the needle on socioeconomic inequality and socioeconomic inclusion... I think AI is the only way to go because, again, I always say you can unbias an algorithm. You cannot unbias a human. It's been shown um, time and time again that, unfortunately, unconscious bias training doesn't work. So if you really want to expand the top of funnel in a way that is only scalable through technology and not through human processes and on top of that remove the bias, we have to look to um, you know AI that's created with these guardrails that we've been talking put in place. So. And you think of the business benefits of that because a company yeah. like Unilever, yeah. which is one of the biggest consumer yeah. companies in the world, it probably says that their workforce end, ends up becoming more representative of their customers. Absolutely. Base. Absolutely. And I think that's what's exciting to them about it, right? And I think that when you hear Lena Nair speak about it, that's exactly her thesis is that, look, we don't want our company to look completely different than the consumers that we're trying to, to to serve, right? And I think it's the same with many companies at this point, right? I mean, whether you're a consumer brand or not, I think people realize the value of having that diversity that represents um, the people that you are selling to or buying your products or whatever. And I think it's it's a very common theme that we see. So, yeah, and I think Lena's big on the, you know, we need to be more human in the digital absolutely. world. And, and absolutely. that is a good example of, of how that actually is affected. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that, you know, always is a mis- misconception is that candidates don't like it. You know, we hear this all the time. And I have two responses to that, right? So having transitioned out of academia through an MBA program where I was part of that recruiting process on the job-seeking side, I one of my responses is you clearly haven't been through a typical recruiting process anytime in the last decade, because let me tell you, it's pretty terrible, right? And again, it's at Harvard, we're overserved, you know, we, no one should feel too sorry for us, but it's not a fun, fun experience, right? And so if you take Unilever, they had their highest candidate rating ever after deploying this digital process. And why was that, right? Let's just think about the reasons for why that was. So one is that everyone got feedback, right? Immediately, we give people feedback, not like good or bad, just like, hey, this is you as a person. So you learn something about yourself, right? Um, The second thing is it's quick, right? I mean, it's called a resume black hole for a reason, because you put your resume (laughs) somewhere and then poof, you never, it's it, it's gone, right? Versus here, at least you're hearing back, right? And I think people want to hear back. They don't want to be strung along forever, right? So that's part number two. And then the third thing that that Pymetrics does specifically, not, we're fairly unique in this, is we rematch people. So if you are not a fit, um, I think your your colleague Adam Grant called us the Harry Potter sorting hat, and that's pretty accurate. So, you know, we if you're not a fit for the role you initially apply for, we can actually help you rematch to another role at that company. And then if you get um, taken out of that company's process altogether, we can actually rematch you across other companies that are using Pymetrics. So at the end of the day, you are much more likely to get a job using this, you know, AI-based system than you are otherwise. And I had a gentleman ask me recently, he's like, well, you know, if we're using these, you know, games and, you know, my competitor is, you know, taking people out to dinner, won't we look bad? And I had two thoughts that I shared with him. I said, first of all, you can 
use games and also take people yeah. out to dinner. <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive. We're not deciding anything for you. We're just helping you make that decision. And at the end of the day, a job seeker doesn't want a dinner. They want a job. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like when you're single, right? Like you don't want to go on endless dates where people are taking you out to dinner. You want to find your your mate. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's lost on people. That anything you can do to increase the likelihood that someone is going to match with their right role, I think is is the winning the winning formula. So. It's almost like widening the funnel, but improving the shortlist. Absolutely. You know, so. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And that works for both sides. You know what I mean? Because we're shortlisting people for the company for role-specific, and then we're also telling candidates we're putting them into that shortlist pool for things they may not have ever considered, which is another sort of, again, it's a discovery process on both sides, I think. so. Great. So Pymetrics doing very well. And obviously Thanks. you had your Series B funding yep. last September. Yep. Um, won't mention the number, but it's out yep. there in it's out there in the public domain. <laughs> yeah. Um what where are you investing yeah. next? Sure. Well, I think the biggest place that we can make an investment is really in technology and the product. Um, I think that behavioral science and artificial intelligence is really just at its infancy in terms of what it can do to help um, to help this matching problem. So that's where we're really doubling down and investing. And everything that we've done at Pymetrics is homegrown. We don't, you know, we've we've re- developed all of the technology ourselves, um, and we will continue to do that until you know. Again, our aim is to be the most ubiquitous talent matching platform on the planet. Uh, lofty aim, I know. Um, but to do that, I think you really have to continually hone in on what are the best signals? Um, are they valid? Are they predictive? Are they fair? Do they comply with legal standards and so on? And it's just a constant evolution of the product. So, And moving on to, into, you, in you, into you and your role, obviously yep. fast-growing company, yep. HR technology is a pretty dynamic space, yep. lots of competitors around. Yep. What are some of the challenges involved in, in, in running a company in this space? Um, I mean, there's plenty of challenges. There's there plenty, <laughs> plenty of, uh, you know, really enjoyable moments. I think, you know, uh, as a, as a female and mom, I think, you know, I've had two kids while running Pymetrics and I actually started Pymetrics when I was a single parent. So balancing, you know, child rearing and, uh, and running a company is always interesting. I mean, Mm. we were just talking about how, you know, I have a six week old right now. And, you know, when you're traveling and I, you know, we met in London a couple of days ago. So I had to fly from New York to London and I'm still breastfeeding and you have to, you know, hide under a blanket while you're, (laughs) (laughs) while you're basically producing food for your little human at home, you know, and storing it in bottles and doing all sorts of crazy things with it, you know? (laughs) So it's definitely a challenge. Um, I mean, I'll give you another, you know, kind of funny example. So I was, um, in need of, you know, becoming a human food production system on the plane. And I went to the stewardess. I said, you know, what should I do? And she's like, oh, you know, you can, you can go to the bathroom. And I felt so bad because I was literally occupying this, you know, airplane bathroom for a good half hour while all these people were probably like, what is this person doing in there? And doesn't she know there's a line? Um, but you know, the, the, you know, it's, it's definitely a challenge to balance all of these different moving parts. Um, and again, I'm not complaining because I think I'm very fortunate to be uh, a woman who's running a technology company. Um, and I hope that, you know, it shows other women who are thinking, can I balance this? Can I juggle this? Um, that you can do it, although it does take a village, as they say, it takes a small, <laughs> small village of people, um, be it both at work and at home that can really help you, help you balance all these things out. Um, but yeah, I think that at that at right now, that's probably the challenge that I'm uh, that I'm yeah, most have. faced with. So yeah, I can imagine. And yeah, obviously, your co-founder is also also a woman. Yep. 
Um, and there's there's quite a lot of stuff out there about the challenges for female entrepreneurs to yeah. get investment. Mm-hmm. How have you found how have you found that? Yeah, you know, people always ask me that, and I think it it so it's it's a hard question to answer because there have definitely been times that I strongly, strongly suspect that um, that investment didn't come our way because of my gender, right? Um, I'll give you a perfect example on our last Series B where, you know, we ended up raising 40 million. So, you know, we were very excited with the outcome. We got a rejection letter from a VC firm that went something along the lines of like, you're amazing. Your team is amazing. The growth of the company is amazing. The financials are spectacular. The market, but there's just something that we couldn't put our finger on that, you know, led us not to invest. And I was like, oh, like, let me give you a multiple choice. Is it that I'm female? Is it that I'm female? Like, you know, and again, you don't know. Maybe it was something else, right? You can never really put your finger on it. But obviously, when you get things like that, um, you know, you start to think, oh, maybe that's what it, that's what it was. Other times that I, I'll never forget, somebody said, oh, you know, Frida doesn't seem like, you know, she didn't, she didn't exude that confidence that we expect to see in entrepreneurs. And, you know, anyone that knew me, sort of like their jaw fell and said, really, <laughs> have you spoken to Frida? Like, so I think it's just, you know, maybe it's a different form of, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a man goes in there and, and acts differently. So I do think that, you know, if you look at any of the research, MIT put out this study where, you know, men got funded with the exact same pitch at twice the rate women did and so on. And there's lots of research to back it up. But on any particular instance, you can, I have never been able to say, oh my goodness, I definitely know that it was because of that. And quite frankly, I think we've been, you know, we've been very fortunate. I mean, I'm, you know, fortunate and obviously, you know, we had a great product. Um, And I also think I benefited from having domain expertise, right? Because I had, you know, a whole career before me um, as a, as an academic that I could, lean on and say, look, I kind of know what I'm doing here. Um, so I think all of those things played into it. We're coming towards the end of the discussion, unfortunately, because I think we could continue this for quite a while. Um, in Paris s- next time. In Paris next time. Hong oh, Kong. Well, yeah, Hong Kong. Why not? <laughs> what do you see as the next evolution in the space? You know, I, I agree with you that we are kind of at the early stages of AI being adopted. Um, And so it's hard for me to really pinpoint, you know, what do I think is, you know, the next thing that's going to happen, especially because I think there is a lot of regulation in the space also that we have to take into consideration when we're building Mm. all these platforms. And at least in the U.S., um, recent laws have come out around all sorts of things, like making sure that the candidate knows they're going through something. There was a recent one making sure that um, if you're using a chat bot, people know that they're speaking to it. So it'll be a very interesting journey that we're all on to see how this technology co-evolves with regulation, which is also evolving. And, you know, I think that regulation has a role. I mean, mm. I think we, I personally don't think we should move to the China system where, you know, social scoring and, you know, all of that. Yeah, it is a bit frightening. And then obviously the opposite end of the spectrum is, you know, Europe and GDPR. And I think the U.S. is, you know, kind of somewhere in the muddy middle. Um, So I don't know what the next evolution is going to be because I think there's, you know, it's a little bit like the weather, the butterfly effect. Like there's just too many variables that for me, my limited mind uh, doesn't have a clear picture of exactly where that evolution is going to go. However, I do strongly, strongly believe um, that artificial intelligence, uh, certainly with this talent matching problem, will play a huge role in it. I think we're going to be a big part of that. Um, and I think there will be other platforms uh, that will that will that will also play a huge, huge role. And I think that 
the evolution, hopefully, of the space will be towards um, removing a lot of the inaccuracies, um, lack of scalability, and biases that we see in the current process. That would be my, my hope. And hopefully so, enabling things like social mobility. Absolutely. I mean, that is a bias, right? Mm. I mean, and, and it's a bias we don't actually speak about a lot, right? Because, you know, again, yes, you know, you know, there, there, there is some like, yeah, you, know, you know, if you go to Harvard, yes, you tend to have better grades and all the rest of it. However, you also tend to often come from a much more socioeconomically privileged background, right? Um, and, you know, in the U.S., there's 18 million college students, 0.4% go to elite universities. And yet those elite universities are the ones that get the vast preponderance of interest from employers, right? Mm. And, you know, a lot of people don't go to those elite universities because they can't afford to, because they didn't grow up in a, you know, situation where they had access to as good um, schooling and so on and so forth. And so if we can't use AI to correct some of those, you know, social inequalities that exist, then I think it's, you know, we're going to just perpetuate and double down on it. And I think that it is, a, it is a bias in our system that we have now, whereby, you know, if we see certain markers of pedigree, whether it's a school you went to or a company you worked at or so on, and unfortunately, those often track socioeconomic status. So I don't think that there's a way for us to really get around that unless we start using some of these, you know, um, some of these platforms that allow us to really remove some of those preconceived notions. And I wonder if things like GDPR, in a few years' time, people will actually see it as a good thing. Um, cause mm-hmm. I, know it's a, I imagine it's a hell of a lot of hassle for a yep. tech company yep. and, and an organization. Sure. But what it is forcing people to do is be a little bit more transparent. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's like, yep. as you said, Absolutely. let people know they're actually yep. going through an assessment. Absolutely. Let people know that we're talking to Absolutely. a chatbot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And I think, look, I mean, I heard um, Stefan, the CEO of Upwork had a great quote. He said, um, you know, in a self-driving car, would you rather have a self-driving car that had an explainable algorithm, um, but that had a higher fatality rate or one that had a black box algorithm and that had a zero fatality rate? So it was an interesting, he posed a great question, right? Um, however, unlike self, you know, self-driving cars, um, you know, HR algorithms aren't hopefully <laughs> killing kill anyone. anyone. There's no fatalities involved. <laughs> hopefully we can say that with, uh, with confidence. And so I do think that in cases like that, explainability, um, especially if we're concerned around things like bias, because again, hopefully the bias issue is less relevant to a uh, self-driving car. Um, I think when we are worried about things like bias, then explainability becomes more important. And so I'd agree with you that, and or, or even just active data collection, letting somebody know that you're actively collecting data as opposed to just passively scraping all this stuff and then poof, you know, you've built an algorithm and they don't even know it, right? Um, so I do think that it depends on the use case. You can't just kind of come with blanket statements. And so I agree that, you know, GDPR has been helpful in that in that capacity. Okay, moving on to our last question. Sure. It's kind of related to the first one, I, uh, last one, I, I suspect. So this is something we ask all our guests on the show. Sure. What do you think the role of HR will be in 2025? I think it's going to be, finally, the strategic function that it really should be. Mm. I mean, HR should should lead, not serve. That's kind of the way that I think. Um, and if you think about an organization, everybody believes that talent is their greatest asset. And yet the HR function has been completely divorced from that. And just, you know, I've heard CHROs describe it as order takers, right? And I and I agree to some extent that that has historically been the role. But I think they haven't been 
given the types of tools that really allow them to become strategic. So I think that that's what I would hope to leave any listener or viewer with the idea that, look, all of this AI that's coming on board, yes, it's a little bit scary. It's a little bit frightening. Like we need to educate ourselves. But at the end of the day, what I firmly believe it's going to allow people to do, and we've seen this over and over again in other um, verticals, is going to allow you to stop doing all this manual busy work and actually become more of a strategic thinker. And my goodness, like, wouldn't wouldn't anyone want that, you know? And that's what we see at all the companies that we work at is that we don't see massive displacement of recruiters. We see them having their functions elevated to something that is, you know, more strategic uh, to the company. So, what a great way to end it. Frida, thank you very much for being yep, a guest thank on the you, show. David. How, do, how can people stay in touch with you? Sure. It's easy. Just uh, www.pymetrics.com. And I'm just Frida, F-R-I-D-A. It's like Friday without the Y at pymetrics.com. And you, do you do you much on social media at all as well? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. I'm just Frida Polly. And so Friday without the Y and then P-O-L-L-I means chickens in Italian. So for those you know that have uh, want something to remember me by. Friday chickens. <laughs> Friday we chickens. remember that. That's right. Frida, thank you very much. Thank you, David. That's all for this week. But please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Jill Larson, Chief People Officer at Medidata, on how to transform HR to drive more business value. Don't miss that one. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on iTunes and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make this podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest news and exclusive training content to prepare you for the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too.